Welcome, friends! I'm your host, Adrian, and yes, you found us, Tea with Puppets, a podcast about Canadian stamp collecting. Yeah! This is episode number 19, and today we'll be talking about the stamps issued by Canada Post to honor the brave Canadians who lost their lives at Vimy Ridge 100 years ago on April 9th, 1917. More in just a moment. Hello friends, thanks for joining us. Today we'll be talking about the courageous assault on Vimy Ridge by Canadian soldiers on April 9th, 1917, and the stamps issued that depict the Canadian National Vimy Memorial. Before we start, let's jump into where Canada was in 1914 at the start of the war. Canada was automatically pulled into the war. I know it's hard to imagine now, but the foreign affairs were guided by London. Now, we can certainly spend hours talking about the details of what led to one of the bloodiest wars of the 20th century, but we'll just touch on the basic facts that led to the war, as many of you are already probably familiar. Now, Europe at the time was just a powder keg waiting to explode, but the trigger for the war was really the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, heir to the throne of the Austrian-Hungary Empire by Yugoslav nationalist in Sarajevo on June 28, 1914. This set off a diplomatic crisis in July when Austria-Hungary delivered an ultimatum to the Kingdom of Serbia with a series of 10 demands that were made intentionally unacceptable in an effort to provoke a war with Serbia. Because of these maneuvers, this triggered all sorts of international alliances that had been formed over the previous decades, and one of the most important was the Franco-Russian alliance. Russia mobilized against Austria-Hungary in support of Serbia, France supported Russia, Germany supported Austria, Germany mobilized their army and went into Belgium, Britain demanded Germany leave Belgium, and so, when Germany did not withdraw its army from Belgium on August 14, 1914, the British Empire, including Canada, was pulled into a war allied with Serbia, Russia, and France against the German and Austrian-Hungarian empires. So when the hostilities began, the enemies entrenched themselves in positions, and there were many hard-fought battles and countless lives lost in the process. Let's also not forget that the military tactics that had been developed before World War I failed to keep up with advances in technology. This was a war that would see barbed wire, machine guns, mustard gas, tanks, and more. Early on, commanders on both sides failed to develop tactics that resulted in heavy casualties on both sides. Essentially, the war on the Western Front was years of trench warfare in which no major exchanges of territory occurred. This is as good a time as any to mention the Americans did not enter the war until 1917. The U.S. wanted to maintain a position of neutrality, but some Americans felt strongly about joining up and crossed the border to do so. The official number of U.S. recruits during the war has been pegged around 35,000, but that number is hard to confirm given the fluid border and the amount of intermarriage there is between Canadians and Americans, especially at the time. According to some estimates, approximately 3,500 Americans were killed fighting with the Commonwealth forces. Many are still buried in Europe, often as Canadians, not as Americans. So with the stage kind of set, we're going to fast forward to the summer of 1916, where the British launched a major offensive against German lines at Somme. The battle lasted five months, killing or wounding approximately 1.2 million men and produced little gains. It really defines the futility and the staggering losses of the First World War. When British soldiers went over the top of their trenches, tens of thousands of men were mowed down by the machine gun fire or caught up in barbed wire and then killed as they tried to reach the German lines. 
1916, as well, Newfoundland was not part of Canada, so they were considered British soldiers. The Canadian forces at the time were stationed in Belgium near the city of Ypres. They were spared the first few months of fighting on the Somme. However, by the end of August, with manpower on the Somme running low, the first three divisions of the Canadian Corps were relocated to battle to help with the offensive. The Canadians entered the battle on August 30th, 1916, taking part in a number of bloody attacks from September through November, supported by the first tanks ever used in action on the Western Front. The Corps captured a series of strategic objectives, including Courcelette, Thiepval, and Ancre Heights. In November, the 4th Division of the Canadian Corps, then fighting alongside the British troops, helped capture the German stronghold of Regina Trench. Overall, from this battle alone, Allied losses were estimated at 623,907 men, of whom more than 24,700 were Canadians or Newfoundlanders. German losses were estimated at 660,000. The seemingly pointless slaughter of the Somme led to questions and severe criticism of the Allied leadership, but the offensive's failure also sparked a new thinking about tactics. Some of the ideas already being experimented with in the final months of fighting on the Somme would be successfully refined, contributing to the achievements of the Corps in 1917 at Vimy Ridge and Passchendaele. Now let's move to the Battle of Vimy. No Allied operation on the Western Front was more thoroughly planned than this deliberate frontal attack on what seemed to be virtually invincible positions. Vimy Ridge was so well fortified that all previous attempts to capture it had failed. However, Canadian commanders had learned the bitter lessons from the cost of past frontal assaults that had been attempted, so to reduce casualties, they would ensure their preparations were elaborate. The Battle of Vimy would also be the first time that all four Canadian divisions fought on the same battlefield. They were led by Sir Arthur William Curry, who was the first Canadian-appointed commander of the Canadian Corps. Curry, who himself was under the command of the British General Byng, fought to keep the Canadian divisions together rather than having them mixed in with various British units. So in late autumn of 1916, the Canadians moved north to relieve the British troops opposite the western slopes of Vimy Ridge. They spent the winter strengthening defenses, carrying out increasingly frequent raids on enemy trenches, and gathering intelligence, all in preparation for the spring offensive. While these raids would see 1,400 Canadian casualties as a result, the knowledge gained helped Canada take Vimy Ridge with lighter losses. With all the intel collected, a full-scale replica of the battle area was laid out. There were reams of colored tape and flags all erected far behind the Canadian lines. This is where the Canadian units prepared and carried out repeated exercises. They rehearsed exactly what they would do throughout the attack so the Canadian troops were fully informed about their objectives and their routes. To soften up the German defenses before an infantry assault, the Allies preceded the attack with a massive artillery barrage. By the time the infantry set out, a million artillery shells had been dropped on the German lines. One Canadian commented that shells poured over his head onto the enemy positions like water from a hose. More than 80% of the German guns had been identified by aerial reconnaissance and by other spotting methods which Canadians had perfected. The Germans called the period the week of suffering. Trenches were shattered and a new artillery demolished many barbed wire entanglements, thereby easing the Canadian dangerous path to combat. This was also a battle heavily impacted by the air war. The support it afforded the victory at Vimy was significant. There were offensive patrols designed to either destroy or discourage the enemy's reconnaissance aircraft and balloons from doing their jobs, and there were defensive patrols to protect friendly core machines. 
So with all the pieces in play, the stage was set. At 5.30 in the morning on April 9, 1917, Easter Monday, a slow artillery barrage began to move steadily toward the Germans. Behind it advanced 20,000 soldiers of the first attacking wave of the four Canadian divisions. There were some hand-to-hand fighting, but the greatest resistance and heavy Canadian losses came from the German machine guns. By midday and right on schedule, three of the four Canadian divisions captured their part of the ridge and overcame this resistance. In the final stage, the 2nd Canadian Division was assisted by the British 13th Brigade, which fell under its command for this operation. The 4th Canadian Division's principal objective was Hill 145, the highest and most important feature of the whole ridge. Once taken, its summit would give the Canadians a commanding view of the German rearward defenses. Because of its importance, the Germans had fortified Hill 145 with well-wired trenches and a series of deep dugouts beneath its rear slope. The brigades of the 4th Division were hampered by fire by guns at a prominent height. They inflicted costly losses on the advancing waves of infantry. Finally, in the afternoon of April 10th, a fresh assault by a relieving brigade cleared the summit of Hill 145 and placed the whole of Vimy Ridge in the Canadian hands. By April 12th, the Germans accepted the loss of Vimy Ridge as permanent and pulled back more than three kilometers away. Vimy Ridge marked the only significant success of the Allied Spring Offensive of 1917, and although the Canadians had won a great tactical victory, they were unable to exploit their success mainly because their artillery got bogged down in the muddy, shell-torn ground. Nevertheless, the Canadian achievement in capturing Vimy Ridge was substantial. At Vimy, the Canadian Corps had captured more ground, more prisoners, and more guns than any previous British offensive in the two and a half years of war. It was one of the most complete and decisive engagements of the Great War and the greatest Allied victory up to that time. The Canadians had demonstrated they were one of the outstanding formations on the Western Front and masters of offensive warfare. Though the victory at Vimy came swiftly, it did not come without a cost. The Corps suffered 10,602 casualties. That is, 3,598 were killed in action and 7,004 were wounded. By the end of the war, close to 61,000 Canadians were killed and another 172,000 were wounded. The Canadian success at Vimy also marked a profound turning point for the Allies. A year and a half later, when the Great War was over, the Canadian achievements, like Vimy, earned Canada a separate signature on the Versailles Peace Treaty, ending the war in 1919. Now let's turn to the Canadian National Monument at Vimy. Even before the war ended in May 1917, the Imperial War Graves Commission, or IWGC, was established. Their mandate was to ensure the proper burial of the dead and establish permanent cemeteries. They also tried to determine how to best memorialize the dead and missing. In 1918, at an imperial conference in London, England approved five general principles. The two relating to memorials stipulated that they should be public and permanent. At the end of the war, an IWGC committee awarded Canada eight battle sites, three in France and five in Belgium, on which to construct memorials. In 1920, the newly established Canadian Battlefields Memorial Commission organized a competition for a Canadian memorial to be erected on each site. There would be 160 submissions in this contest. In October 1921, the commission announced the winner, Walter Seymour Allward of Toronto, Ontario, a gifted Canadian architect and sculptor. He would later say about his design that his inspiration for the monument came to him in a dream. In the summer of 1922, 
the Canadian Battlefields Memorial Commission selected Vimy Ridge as the only site for Allward's winning memorial. It was decided this would be the spot of land where a monument would be built as a tribute to all Canadians who fought and sacrificed themselves in the Great War. The other battle sites, with the exception of that at Saint-Julien, which received the competition's second-place design, may do with less distinguished monuments. Selecting Vimy Ridge as the sole spot for the monument seemed like an obvious choice, with its impressive location and vantage point. The battle's military significance to the new nation of Canada certainly contributed to this selection as well. Work began on the monument in 1925. Built into the side of the hill at the highest point of the ridge, the monument rests on a bed of about 15,000 tons of concrete reinforced with hundreds of tons of steel. The excavation had to be done with great care, as the ground was littered with live bombs and shells. It took more than two and a half years just to do that. The base and twin pylons containing almost 6,000 tons of a special type of extremely durable limestone brought to the site from a quarry near Sarajevo, Yugoslavia, now Croatia. This is also the location, or rather the country, in 1914, where the assassination of the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife precipitated the outbreak of the First World War. Along with the twin pylons are 20 sculptures representing allegorical figures such as Faith, Hope, and Canada bereft, with expressions and poses that signify sorrow and loss. Allward spent years sculpting them in his studio in London, England. The models Allward created were life-sized, plaster models at first, and later doubled in size using an instrument called a pantograph to reproduce the sculptures at the proper scale. The finishing touches were then added by a master carver. All the work on the monument was carried out inside temporary studios built around each figure, including those at the top of the pylons. The pylons tower 27 meters above the base of the monument, and because of the height of the ridge, the topmost figure, that of Peace, is approximately 110 meters above the Douai Plain to the east. Eleven years after the construction was begun, the monument, at a cost of approximately $1.5 million, or roughly $26 million in 2017 Canadian dollars, was completed. A ceremony was held on July 26, 1936, and the monument was officially unveiled by King Edward VIII. Here is a part of the speech from that day. In the capital city of Canada, at the heart of the Dominion, there is a memorial chamber set apart as a perpetual reminder of the service and losses of Canada in the Great War. Nine years ago, I had the privilege of dedicating the altar within it, where will lie forever a book of remembrance recording the names of more than 60,000 Canadians who gave their lives for the cause which Canada had made her own. Above the door of the chamber is engraved, All's well, for over there among his peers a happy warrior sleeps. These words reveal the, the inner meaning of what we do today. They tell us that beautiful and impressive as is the memorial in Ottawa, the Canadian people could not feel that it was complete. It was over there that the Canadian armies fought and died. It is over there 
that their final monument must stand. Today, thousands of miles from the shore of Canada, we are assembled around that monument. Yet, we are not on alien soil. One of our English poets wrote that where he lay would be forever England, that England for which he died. He spoke a parable, but here today that parable is living truth. The realization of it will, I know, bring comfort to many thousands of Canadian men and women. For this glorious monument, crowning the hill of Vimy, is now and for all time a part of Canada. Though the mortal remains of Canada's sons lie far from home, yet here where we now stand in ancient Artois, their immortal memory is hallowed upon soil that is as surely Canada's as any acre within her nine provinces. By a gesture which all can understand, but soldiers especially, the laws of France have decreed that here Canada shall stand forever. We raise this memorial to Canadian warriors. It is the inspired expression in stone, chiseled by a skillful Canadian hand of Canada's salute to her fallen sons. It marks the scenes of feats of arms which history will long remember and Canada can never forget. And the ground it covers is the gift of France to Canada. All the world over, there are battlefields, the names of which are written indelibly on the pages of our troubled human story. It is one of the consolations which time brings that deeds of valor done on those battlefields long survive the quarrels which drove the opposing hosts to conflict. Vimy will be one such name. Already the scars of war have well nigh vanished from the fair landscape spread before us. Around us here today there is peace and the rebuilding of hope. And so also in dedicating this memorial to our fallen comrades, our thoughts turn rather to the splendor of their sacrifice and to the consecration of our love for them than to the cannonade which beat upon this ridge a score of years ago. In that spirit, in the spirit of thankfulness for their example, of reverence for their devotion and of pride in their comradeship, I unveil this memorial to Canada's dead. With that, the monument was shown to the world. If ever you have seen the monument, you know it's impressive, even on the stamps that depict it. To give you even greater details of the monument, the Veterans Canada website has a great detailed walkthrough of the monument I'd like to share right now. From afar, you see two large pylons that represent Canada and France, two nations beset by war and united to fight for a common goal, 
peace and freedom for the allied nations. As you approach the monument, you will pass two reclining mourners on each side of the steps, a woman on the left and a man on the right. As you walk to the front of the monument, you will see one of its central figures, a woman cloaked and hooded, facing eastward towards the new day. Her eyes are cast down and her chin is resting on her hand. Below her is a tomb draped in a laurel branch and bearing a helmet. This saddened figure represents Canada, a young nation mourning her fallen sons. This figure was carved from a single 30-ton block of stone, the largest piece in the monument. Turning from this figure to look up at the pylons, you will see at the highest point, justice and peace. Arranged below them are the figures representing truth, knowledge, gallantry, and sympathy. Around these figures are shields of Canada, Britain, and France. On the outside of the pylons is the cross. In the center, at the base, the spirit of sacrifice throws the torch to his comrades. Besides the steps leading down on each side of the front walls are two groups of carved figures. These are the defenders. Facing the memorial at the bottom of the stairs on your left is the breaking of the sword, and on your right, sympathy for the helpless. Above each group are cannons, silent now, and draped in laurel and olive branches, symbols of victory and peace. On the outside of the monuments and closing walls, you will find the names of 11,285 Canadians who were killed in France and whose final resting places are unknown. The First World War battle honors the regiments that fought at Vimy Ridge and Dedicatory inscriptions are carved on the face of the pylons. As you stand on the monument's wide stone terrace and look out over the broad fields and rolling hills of France, you can see the other places where Canadians fought and died. More than 7,000 are buried in 30 war cemeteries within a 16-kilometer radius of this spot. Wow. As you can see, this monument is just a masterpiece, and hopefully one day you have a chance to see it in person. Now let's turn to the stamps that Canada Post has issued depicting this monument. The first was issued in 1968 and commemorated the 50th anniversary of the armistice that ended the First World War. The 15-cent denominated stamp was designed by Harvey Thomas Prosser and released on October 15, 1968. You can also see it under Scott number 486. It depicts a view towards the two towering pylons and the foreground the stamp displays the defenders and the breaking of the sword, one of the many sculptured groups decorating the massive Canadian Vimy Memorial. It's definitely a very somber stamp by the fact that there's no color at all included. Now the next stamp issued has a bit of color and it was actually issued on April 8th, 2017. It's a joint issue with Francis La Poste to mark the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Vimy Ridge. The joint issue features two stamps, one designed by Canada Post and one designed by La Poste, honoring the bond forged between these two nations. The Canadian stamp was designed by Susan Scott of Montreal, and like the earlier stamp from 1968, it features the two towering pylons of Walter Allard's Vimy Monument, which represents France and Canada. However, I feel the stamp does a much better job of capturing the sheer scale of the monument. In the foreground of the stamp is a figure of a grieving man, one of the monument's statues symbolizing loss and grief. Also represented on the stamp are the thousands of names inscribed around the base of the monument. They are a memorial, as we mentioned, to all the Canadians who died in France during the First World War and have no known grave. Laurel springs surround the monument's two towers on the stamp, representing the victory and tragic loss of life. A maple leaf on one sprig represents Canada, while an oak leaf on the other represents France. As for the French stamp, it focuses on one of the most poignant statues at the site, a cloaked woman. Representing a country in mourning, Canada bereft gazes down at a symbolic tomb at her feet and overlooks the French countryside where Canadians fought for peace and sacrificed for freedom. There are a couple of ways to collect these issues. The Canadian domestic rate stamp is available in a booklet of 10. 
There are also official first day covers with a single domestic rate stamp and a joint official first day cover with both stamps at the Canadian international rate. However, to me, the most impressive item is the Canadian souvenir sheet. It contains two international rate stamps. The Canadian stamp is on the upper left and the French stamp is on the upper right. In between the stamp is an impressive illustration of the two pylons symbolizing the two nations and images of the preserved trenches from the surrounding battlefield. It truly is a piece of art. Regardless of what you choose to collect, any version of this stamp from this release is a great addition to your collection. So that's it for the 19th episode. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing this show with your friends. The time you take to do this helps us get the word out, so we appreciate it immensely. If you're looking for more info about the show, make sure to check us out at teawithpuppets.com. To see the stamps we mentioned in this episode and more, click on the show notes image at the top right corner of our website or the link we've added to the description of this podcast episode. If you have any podcast feedback, ideas for guests, cool stories, or more, we'd love to hear too. You can email us over at feedback at teawithpuppets.com. Finally, if you're on Facebook, make sure you like our page or follow us on Twitter at the handle teawithpuppets. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon for our next episode. Have a super rest of the day, and happy collecting.